welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Today, as we move into our Christmas series, a great Christmas text on the incarnation of our Lord. It's John chapter 1, verse 14. So hear with me the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. This is God's eternal word. May its truth burst upon our heart in new and deep passion in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, uh, weren't the young people great today? They were awesome. They were just great. Yeah. You know, they symbolize so many images that uh, come to mind when we think of the birth of Jesus, don't they? The, the beautiful and lasting and simple images, the image of innocence, right? You just can see it in every face and in every heart. The innocence that, of course, we think of when uh, the baby Jesus was born that morning, the, the very definition of innocence, but little did we know he would go on to show us that he was the only sinless human being to ever grace the planet. So innocence is, is part of what we know to be true of the Christmas event. They also symbolize to me tenderness with each other and just tenderness before us. And I couldn't help but think of the, the tenderness of Joseph, what he must have been like in that, that morning time with an exhausted Mary and, and being part of a miracle, but going through a lot of duress to get there, the tenderness that must have surrounded that moment and that, that morning. Uh, they also made me think about joy of course, you could see that just broadcast, right? And every, every smile that they had. And that mirrors the joy that the shepherds had as they were given the ringside seat unexpectedly to be part of the invasion of a sinful planet by a saving God. And then hope. You know, you think of hope when you look at a child, don't you? Our hopes in our world are wrapped up in them. And Mary must have gazed down at her child, knowing what the angel had prophesied about him, and her hope began to build that God's promises would all come true. So these are some of the images we have as Christmas kind of crests into our life one more time. And they're beautiful images, they're great, they're real, and they ought to be cherished. But... uh, Jesus wasn't only a remarkable baby. He didn't just stir those human emotions that morning. He was also the eternal God, wasn't he? That's why Hebrews was read to us when they declared that that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, That text talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is eternal. He had no beginning. He was God from all time. And he moved into human experience, stepped into time. He is the eternal God, and the eternal God arrived that morning. And when God arrives, the profound comes with him. 
When God arrives, the profound arrives with him. And, and so I want to take us for the next few messages in this sermon series into an understanding of some of the pleasing things we've thought of, we've just talked about, but the great realities of who Christ is and what his arrival means to us. I want to look at the profound realities that arrived with him that morning because it was the God-man that came to us. And so the series is entitled, uh, Do You See What I See? And I, I want to take you into some of these profound realities and remind you about them, not because I see them and you don't, but because they've been seen and cherished by Christians of every generation. And Christmas is a time when we remind ourselves of the greatness and the profound truths of what happened when Jesus arrived. And so we're going to take uh, four different times to do that. And I'm going to go over four different profound realities that we see when we consider who Christ was and when he came. The first today is that he arrived as the perfect one, God incarnate, God who became man. And we're going to talk about why that matters, not only in our whole experience of him, but in terms of how it might alter your Christmas. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that he also arrived as the predicted one. Jesus Christ stands alone in human history as the only human being whose birth was predicted centuries in advance by different authors who never knew him but, but predicted details about his arrival. He is unique in human history for that. And so we're going to talk about this predicted person and the prophecies that mark him out in history. Christmas Eve... We'll talk about him as the persuasive one because when you really put it all together about God arriving in time in the person of Christ, how he arrived and what it all means explodes the arguments of a non-believing world. I'll share my story and how when I really understood who Jesus is and what it meant that he arrived in time, it exploded my arguments against the existence of God. So the perfect one, the predicted one, the persuasive one, when you really think about the truth about him, it's you can't evade it. And then finally, the provocative one. Once you understand and know who came, and once you understand the implications for your life, you need to make a decision about Christ. He doesn't remain a babe in, in the manger. He emerges as the God-man, and he goes to a cross, and he rises out of the, the tomb in, in, in a way that, that demands that you must decide whether you will give your life to him. And so when Christ arrived, it set into motion a provocation that leads to decision. People have to decide what they will do with this Christ. And so we'll talk about that. But today, the perfect one, we're going to go into just one text, a text that's been visited often at the Christmas season here and at other places. John 1.14, the beginning of John's gospel, Dr. Barclay, the great Bible commentator, said that this verse describes the reason John wrote the entire gospel. It's the sentence for which, for the sake of which the whole gospel was written. It's a declaration of the word, the eternal God coming into time and taking on humanity. It's the whole theme of that gospel. In it, we discover the word in the first uh, phrase of the text. 
The word is a descriptor for God Almighty. We know that because in the very beginning of the chapter in John 1, 1, it talks about the fact that in the beginning was the word and when the word was with God and the word was God. So if you're new to Christianity and that phrase is confusing to you, the word is a title of God and Jesus Christ was God, is God and ever shall be God. The same yesterday, today and forever. And this one came into time. It says he became flesh, took on humanity. And he did it in three perfect ways. And that's going to be the body of my message for you today. This text tells us that he was the perfect one who came out of eternity and into time. And there are three distinct ways in which he came as perfect God. And they will change your heart and your life as you deepen your knowledge of him through them. So let's look at them together. Pretty simple message to follow. But we're going to go into some theology this morning that has confounded minds ever since the scripture opened it. In fact, I should probably lead with a warning. And the warning is what I'm going to talk about in, in most of this message, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, cannot be humanly understood. It simply cannot be. Critics have railed at it for 2,000 years. Other people have tried to change what the Bible says about it for 2,000 years. And some people have said, if I can't understand it, I can't receive Christ for 2,000 years. None of those things are true. What I'm going to talk about, God becoming man, is a mystery. It's not something you can fully understand or explain. And in fact, nobody expected it ever to happen, except the prophets. But you have to faithfully accept it. So bear that in mind when I talk about it today. If you're not yet a Christian and you've always had some skeptical uh, holdbacks about Christ, he came as the perfect God-man, and he came, number one, perfect in his person. Two things about this. This text teaches, first of all, that he became and remains fully man. This is very important because when... When critics and those that refuse to believe what the Bible says get a hold of the understanding that God became man, they can't resist breaking it apart because they cannot believe it. But the Bible says he became and remains fully man. Let me unpack that for you. The text says the word, the eternal God, we know that from verse 1, became flesh. Just stop right there. There's a universe of preaching in that one phrase. Now, what does became flesh mean? It meant that the eternal God came into, into time and space and allowed himself to take on a human body and a human person. The word flesh there doesn't just mean the body that Jesus was born with, born into by the miracle of the virgin birth. He not only took on a body, but he took on the personal nature of man. So flesh there means a human being, body and soul, fully human. It's an amazing thought to think about. It also says he became flesh. Now this is important because a lot of people have looked at what happened on Christmas morning 
and said, it's beyond my capacity to believe that God could become a man and yet still stay God. So he must have stopped being God. And he took on for a temporary period of time the nature of flesh. If you're involved in, 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 if you've ever been involved in some of the major cults in our society, that's what they'll be teaching. They want to destroy the deity of Christ, the eternality of the Son of God. That's not what this text says. It says he became. He didn't stop being God. He continued to be God, but he added the dimension of humanity along with that. God became man, yet he remained fully God. The Greek word is genomai, and it it meant to go from state to state. It meant to be who you are, but to add something to you in a sense. It doesn't mean he stopped being God. Dr. Linsky, one of the great uh, Greek commentators that gave me headaches in seminary for many years, did say it in his detailed way, and I'll pull it out of a commentary that I used back then. He said, from the start, the thought must be rejected that became here means a transformation of the word into flesh. In other words, he stopped being who he was and started being somebody else. The word did not cease to be what it was before, God, but it became what it was not, flesh, human. The word being God could not possibly change into something else, for then God would cease to be God. The mystery of how the creator could assume our created nature will forever challenge our finite comprehension. See what I told you? You cannot understand this. You accept it as a mystery that that God himself has performed and and entered into. The tremendous fact itself is beyond question, and for us, that's enough. The incarnation is absolutely unique, he writes. Nothing like it has ever been known before. The only being with two natures is the Son of God. Let me repeat that. The incarnation means that the only being with two natures is the Son of God, Dr. Linsky writes. How can that be? How can he still be God, yet assume this dimension of human nature? I don't know. I can't understand it. It's a math formula that I can't solve, but in, in, in God's mathematics, one plus one still equals one. I mean, think about it that way. It's an amazing thing. So he became flesh and he became fully human. And, and it's important to understand that he became fully human, not, not only in the sense that he had a physical body born into that physical experience that we have, but he also became human body and soul. What's the soul? The soul is the dimension that makes you, you. It's that that connection unique to you of your mind and your emotions and your will. It's the invisible dimension of your personhood, right? Jesus became human body and soul. He had a mind and emotions and will just like you do. They were perfect and without sin, but he lived in life with the same sensitivities that you and I do. And sometimes he suffered like, well, always he suffered as a human being would suffer. Even though he was without sin, he went through life with the same sensitive soul that you've got. Put it that way. Things that make you emotional made him emotional. Things that troubled you would trouble him. 
In Matthew 26 and verse 38, one of the most beautiful little moments of, of Christ's conversation, when he was in Gethsemane, praying along with the Father, heading into the, the, the experience of the cross, he went into Gethsemane, he took with him Peter and James and John, and the scripture says he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and in verse 38 of Matthew 26, it says, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is Christ. This is my Lord, fully possessed of a human soul and able to experience the sorrows and difficulty that we experience in our own spirit, our own soul. When he was facing the cross, he brought them with him. Why? Because he was fully human and he had that human need not to be alone in his troubles. He said, stay with me, pray with me. Oh, my Lord was just like I was. He experienced the pain of living and battling just like I do. He experienced the oppression of the devil himself upon his mind and his emotions and his very will just like I have and just like you have. Our Lord became fully human. That's precious to me. For reasons I'll get into a little later, he can relate to me. So he became and remains fully man, but he did it without sin. You got to remember that the Christmas experience was given to us so that we remember the miracle of the virgin birth. Why is that important? He became fully human, but without any dimension of sin. That's critical because that fully human man went to a cross and he had to be perfect to sacrifice himself in our place. If Jesus possessed sin, he would have had to die for his own sin, and we would never have found a spotless Savior. His human nature was unfallen and untainted by the effects of sin. That inborn inclination you've always fought with all of your life to rebel against God was never a part of Christ's experience. Jesus fully experienced every pain of living in a fallen world, but he didn't share the guilt of Adam's sin or the drive from Adam's sin passed on through the human race. In fact, Jesus never committed a sin. Listen to this, nor could he. He was impeccable. He did not sin and he would not sin. He could not sin. He was tempted like us, but he perfectly obeyed his father in every moment of it. Remarkable. That's our Lord. Became fully man, but without sin, I'm so glad. So humanity was what you call, we could call an added state to who he was. In, in John 1, 1, it says in the very beginning of time before the first page of human history was turned, Jesus already existed as God. He came into time and he added the dimension of human identity to himself. He became, but he remains God. Did you also know that Christ, after he rose from the dead, took that body with him? This is amazing. Most people think of Christ in heaven today in some kind of ephemeral spiritual being. Well, he was spirit in the past, but then he assumed a human body, and he now takes that body in heaven with him today, resurrected, glorified. But that beautiful Lord Jesus stands physically in heaven today. The scripture says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. So when you and I see Jesus in heaven, he'll be physically real 
we'll still be able to see the nail prints and he'll be in a glorified body. Why is that so encouraging? Because if he'll be in a glorified body, who else will be? You and I. You and I. So he became and he remains fully human. That's the first dimension of his perfect arrival as a perfect person. But secondly, he had always been and continued to be fully God. This kind of amplifies the first point. But I just want to make sure you understand the nature of what the, the phrase the word means. It says the word became and he remained. It's a mystery to us. The word in this text is an expression for creator God. That's explained by chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, he was in the beginning with God, the word was God, and all things were made through him. So the word describes Christ as the eternal creator God. He'd always been. And yet, when he was born into time and space, Colossians, pardon me, Philippians chapter 2 says, he limited himself in certain ways as he walked the earth. Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the Greeks there says he he was God in essence. He was the eternal God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What had to happen before Jesus arrived in the cradle in Bethlehem? He had to agree to allow himself to be limited into time and space, to take on the form of a human body, and to limit how he would express himself as God for your sake, to go to a cross as a man for you. But he never stopped being God. He humbled himself, the scripture says. What does this mean? How could he still be God yet be fully human? Wouldn't he be limited by his humanity only in the ways he decided to be? He voluntarily decided to limit how he manifested two things, his power and his glory. Jesus Christ at times decided to live within the limitations of his human body and the human soul that he operated in. And he at times limited his ability to express his power as God. Was he always omniscient as omniscient as God? Oh, he never stopped being that. But there were times when he decided not to exercise that power because it fit his assignment as a man. For example, when he walked through the crowds in Caesarea, and a woman reached up and touched the hem of his garment, that woman belonging so so to be healed. Jesus stopped, the crowd was all pressing around him, and he said, who touched me? Remember that? He's almighty God. At other times, he knew exactly where people were who were miles distant from him, like Nathaniel when he called him to be his disciple. In that moment, he voluntarily elected not to use his almighty, all-knowing power to suit God's plan for that moment. So, He voluntarily limited that. As he faced the cross, don't you remember this saying when he said, don't you know that I could call down from my father 12 legions of angels right now? But he wouldn't because he had to limit himself in that way to get all the way to the cross. It's an amazing thing. So he limited his power, but he also voluntarily contained his glory. Jesus Christ was born into that cradle as almighty God, perfect God, the total and complete God. 
but he shrouded his glory in a human body and throughout his life he he dimmed and shrouded the glory of who he was god in human form except one time remember where that was ever hear of the mount of transfiguration in the midst of his ministry, he took these same men with him that would go to the garden. Peter and James and John took them up to a high mountain and he engaged in worship and prayer toward the Father. And the Bible says that his appearance was altered and his physical body, in a sense, opened and became transparent and the glory of God shone out from him in a way that flattened those guys. Why? God wanted to declare in the midst of his son's servant walk to the cross that he was God, he always had been God, he was God in that moment, and he was going back to the glory that he had before he left and came to planet Earth. But make no, make no mistake, he was God Almighty. But he humbled himself and chose not to express himself as God. But notice he never gave up the title. He never, for example, when Thomas fell before him and worshipped him in the upper room and said, my Lord and my God, did Jesus refuse that worship? Oh, no. He allowed himself to be worshipped. At times he expressed the mighty power of God without reservation. When he spoke into Lazarus' grave and said, Lazarus, come forth, that was the power of God. And he never apologized for it. He raised the dead. He overcame the kingdom of darkness. And when he looked at somebody and said, dear one, your sins are forgiven, he could say it with authority because he knew he was God. He never gave up the title. In fact, he claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So all of this is important for you to understand. Why? How can that change your Christmas? Because if you understand that he came and came as a perfect man, then you can be sure that he went to the cross as a perfect man. And 1 Peter 1.8 was fulfilled when the Bible says that a lamb that was spotless had to be sacrificed for your sin and for mine. Not just our failure to, to, to live outwardly right, morally, but all the failures of our heart to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Who did that for you? The Lord Jesus. He took that perfect life to the cross and sacrificed it in place of yours. Took the curse of God for you. Only a perfect one, a perfect man could have done that. Aren't you glad he, he came as the perfect man? But he also stayed eternal God who died on the cross, the God-man. What had to happen on the cross? You bore an eternal penalty that had to pay, pay, be paid for throughout all eternity for your sin if you headed into eternity without Christ. But Christ went to that cross and God, the eternal father, poured an eternal amount of wrath onto his son. And Jesus absorbed all that. How could he have absorbed an eternal amount of wrath? Listen, only because he was eternal God. He absorbed every ounce and every second of that for you as eternal God. He took all of that so that you can be eternally free. If you've never understood who was born that Christmas, now you know. And your Christmas can be different if you understand what he did and who he grew up to be. It's a beautiful Christmas hymn. You probably will sing it before long. 
The words were written by Charles Wesley, great uh, church leader of the past. Hark the herald angels sing. In the middle of that, everything I've just said for the last 15 minutes is described. The verse reads, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. In other words, Christ had been adored in heaven for all eternity before he came. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. That's Christ coming into time, the miracle of the virgin birth, gestating within Mary and arriving into human history on that Bethlehem morning. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. God and man, God in a man, veiled in flesh, God holding back his glory, but still living as eternal God, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Why did the angels worship? Because he was God. Perfect in his person. That'll change your Christmas. Here's the last two. The text opens up a little bit more. The second teaching idea in it is that he was also perfect in his presence. Here he shifts as you go back to John 1, 14. He declares this a momentous arrival. The word became flesh is all about that first morning. It's all about eternity, barging into time. And then, and dwelt among us, that talks about the next 33 years. That talks about every moment from the birth event to the cross. And he dwelt among us. Us there is John going back in his mind to all the other disciples who were with him. And he talks about the fact that for three and a half years, Jesus was with them and dwelt among them. He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate with them. He taught them. He joked with them. He ran with them. He relaxed with them. He suffered with them. And the us there expands not only to the disciples, but John was saying he dwelt among all of us as human beings. Everyone that was around him was in the presence of God, and he dwelt among us. So it's a massive idea. The word dwelt there is a, is a word that meant tabernacled. Now, a tabernacle, if you know your Old Testament, was a tent that God ordered to be built by the nation of Israel early in their relationship with him as they moved on their journeys. And God said, it will be a temporary place where my presence will come to be near you. A tabernacle was a tent. And here John is saying, God pitched his tent among us. What's that imagery of? God came in a physical body and in a human dimension of personhood and he pitched his tent for a while with us. That's awesome. That's the majesty of the incarnation. Two understandings about this. He lived among us as God. This is so important. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice there's no difference in that phrase. It doesn't say the word stopped being God, then became flesh and hung around with us as a man. 
pretty interesting man, an amazing man in a lot of ways, but just a man. No, the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. God stayed with us. God was present with us. You know, ever since the garden and the fall of man, God's ageless plan has been to design a way where he could still be near those that had fallen. When Adam and Eve fell, they couldn't remain in the garden. And so they were expelled from the garden because God's holiness cannot tolerate the presence of sin. He would have had to destroy them had he not expelled them. And so they were expelled from the garden. But ever since that moment, God had been moving in his own plan to be near to these fallen people in such a way that his holy presence could be as close to them as possible. And so there was, for example, the pillar of fire and cloud when Israel first met God. Remember that? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That was a symbol of of God's presence. It was a place where God concentrated his presence, if you will, so that he could be near his fallen people, his chosen people. And then there was the tabernacle itself, which was designed and instructed through Moses for the early nation of Israel to build this tent that would kind of be a moving tent. And every time they camped, they would put it together and the presence of God would come and manifest itself in the tabernacle. Why? Because in Leviticus chapter 26, in the beginning of God's relationship with Israel, he said, even though you're sinners and stiff-necked men and women, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, So this has been God's passion. So the pillar of fire and cloud by day and night, then the tabernacle, then the temple was constructed. You remember that? And God's glory came and dwelt and rested in the temple at different times. But it was always his, his invisible presence as the invisible spirit coming to a visible place. But the plan evolved finally into this momentous event where God decided and came to pitch his glory into a human tent, and that was the person of Jesus Christ. That's why our Christmas text in Isaiah is so meaningful. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The passion continued. The commitment flourished. And so God ultimately arrived into human presence in the most powerful way that he would. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it a different way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. That's why John called Jesus the word whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, the one that hold the world together, that held the world together on that Bethlehem morning, stepped into it. How can that be? I told you from the beginning, you're not going to understand this. But you should be in awe of it. So he lived among us as God. God came into the very presence 
not only to reveal, but to rescue us. The scripture says in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The virgin birth, the arrival at Bethlehem, all ensconced in that phrase, born under the law. Jesus lived a perfect life of total obedience to God in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. (laughs) It was all for your spiritual rescue that this happened. It wasn't just to create a quaint story. That's why I said, let's move beyond the emotional images to the spiritually profound reality of his arrival. That's why God did all this. So he lived among us as God, God in our midst. And secondly, under this, he lived with us as men. So notice the phrase I used there. He lived among us as God, that veiled presence, but he also lived with us as men. He says, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So he lived among us as God, but he lived with us as a man. In other words, everything that he went through in human experience related to what we go through in human experience. This is very important. It'll change your Christmas. See, Jesus tasted all the pain of life in a fallen world. When Isaiah prophesied that when Christ came that Christmas, he would live into a life where it says, surely he has borne our griefs. I think that wasn't just talking about the judgment on the cross. I think that was talking about everything Jesus ever experienced in the pain of living in a human world, in a human body he chose for himself and a human life he chose for himself. He lived under the weight and the pain of sin and a broken world and sinful people. That's where you and I live. In that sense, he bore our griefs. He lived through our experience. Hebrews chapter 4 puts it in a different way. He wrote, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. Hold on to your faith, even though you're going through great troubles, he said to these people in Hebrews. Cherish your faith. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When the disciples were hungry, who else was hungry? Jesus. When the disciples were pursued, when persecutors came, when the circle of darkness surrounded that little flock, who also did they surround? Jesus, who protected those disciples in every moment so that they too would not be caught by those that hated the revelation of God. Everything they went through, he went through. Every dimension of human experience and human temptation that you've ever lived through, Jesus lived through. But he did not, it says, sin, yet without sin. Can you imagine what it would be like for 30 years to live as the God-man under the constant onslaught, schemes, and unholy terror of Satan and his entire demonic realm focused on you every moment of your life? Can you imagine what it's like to live in a human system that was opposed to everything you ever taught and everything you ever were? 
and constantly moved against you with all the gathered human wickedness possible. Can you imagine the temptations Jesus underwent as he lived through that? The temptation to anger, the temptation to to lash out, the temptation to despair to the point where he wouldn't go on, the temptation to give in to whatever you and I would give in to when we were under the onslaught of an evil world and evil people. Jesus was under that relentlessly without a break 24-7 all the way through the final moment of the hours of the cross. And the Bible says, yet even then, he lived through it all without sinning. But here's the thing. He lived through it all in the same way that you were tempted. He can relate. He knows what it's like to live in a broken, hateful world. Let us then, he says in Hebrews, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What confidence can you have? You're drawing near to a throne of by which is standing the risen Lord Jesus Christ who understands every need you'll ever bring, every struggle you ever want to talk about, every temptation you're ever going to grapple with, every moment of your spiritual life that's about to defeat you. Oh, he will understand. And he will be ready with mercy and grace to help in time of need. What a marvelous and wonderful Savior. How could that change your Christmas? Well, in my line of work, I'm no stranger to the fact that life's hurts escalate at Christmas because they, they gather at the end of another year in which, you think it, in which you'd hoped that certain things that are hurting your life would have changed. Certain burdens you're living through would have altered Physical illnesses you're experiencing would have lessened. Griefs in family relationships that you wish would have healed. Pressures in your life because of your stand for Christ that you had hoped would finally go away. Chronic battles psychologically and emotionally with life that makes you feel that you've lived through another year in which so many others seem to sail through these things so much more easily than you do. Chronic depression is still a battle for you. Self-harm may still be one broken moment away for you. All of these things, these broken shards of a broken world, and the herd of broken people may not be different this Christmas, but let me tell you something. Whatever hardships or hurt you're carrying into this Christmas, Emmanuel can comfort you. Emmanuel can know and understand because he walked through them too and he endured them all for the glory of God. He knew God's calling on his life. And my friend, so do you. Oh, you go with confidence to him, to that throne of grace, and you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Well, my time is gone. Quickly to the last, as is so often the case when I preach. 
quickly to the last. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the divine in human form. And we've seen his glory. Last phrase, seen his glory powers the last point. During the entire experience that John had with Christ, John wrote this 30 years after Jesus had risen, but he went back in his mind's eye and he says, every day I was with Jesus for three years, I saw his glory. I didn't understand it at the time, but I was seeing the glory of God, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Immediately to our secular mind comes the question, what's glory? What is glory? We, we, we think of it only in terms of giving praise to somebody who's done a courageous thing. We give glory to a war hero. Glory in biblical terms, it's a manifestation of God's greatness. It's a breaking out of God when we see it. It's, it's a God sighting in a moment or in an action. The glory is seen in the Bible in two ways. Sometimes God shows, showed his raw power. When, when God called Moses to the Mount of Sinai, to give him the commandments, the power and the power, the, 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 the light and the, the fire of God's holiness descended on that mountain for 40 days. So sometimes he shows his power or sometimes he shows his character, his mercy, his grace. And John is saying here, for the years that I was with the, the, the human Lord Jesus, we all saw his glory. And the biggest thing we saw was that he was full of grace and truth. So God's character was shown in Christ. How did he do that? Two ways. He let them watch his life. We beheld the, the phrase be, gaze or we, we, his glory. We have seen rather his glory. The phrase seen was a Greek word that meant to gaze upon and to lock your eyes on something that you were watching unfold. And John was saying for three years, we locked our eyes on him and we saw more and more what God's grace and truth looked like. We heard truth from his lips and we saw grace in his actions. He let us see his life. That was the method of discipleship Jesus chose. He didn't go through a book and have you fill out the blanks. He just let you be with him. Wow. <laughs> that was the essence of it. He let them be with him. And slowly over time, they saw the glory of God in the face of Christ, as Corinthians tells us. He let them watch his life. And of course, that was the, the way to encounter God, because Jesus said in John 8, 29, that I, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So if you watch Jesus 24-7, you saw God. You saw divine perfection. You saw everything you were supposed to be. You saw everything that was perfectly holy. And that's what Jesus was 24-7. It was just being with him, and occasionally he'd throw a pop quiz into the conversation, which was stunning and scary to the disciples, you know. Feeding of the 5,000, he looked out and says, okay, guys, you've seen me for two years now. What would you do with 5,000 hungry people? They should have known. Lord, we can't do anything, but you sure can. So we've seen you heal the blind. We've seen you raise up the near dead. You got this. Well, plunk, fail. And the mercy and the grace of God continued. And he still let them be with him and see him. Just a marvel. John 14 8 and 9, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, to Philip, who failed his final pop quiz, by the way. Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said, have you been with me so long? Yet you do not know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he let them watch his life, but secondly, he let them see his heart, the heart of God. It says, 
When it was all said and done, John looked back on the life that Christ let him share with him, and he said, Jesus was more than anything. If you want me to sum up who he was, he was full of grace and truth. I heard the truth about my sin and the truth about his cross. And when I was at the foot of that cross, I saw in his dying grace. I saw the mercies of God poured out. So how could that change your Christmas? Well, it might help you to remember that this baby that was born was born to grow up and to live a life that would travel to a cross and then rise out of a tomb and introduce millions, including possibly you, to two things, the truth of who God is and the grace of what God has done. He did it all so that you might understand what 2 Corinthians 5, 19 tells us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the life of Jesus Christ in one verse. So how could it all change Christmas for you? Hey, just... I want to urge you to look past the simple images of his birth to the profound things that he grew up to teach and accomplish, the greatness of grace and truth that we really see in him. And taste it for yourself. This Christmas, if you never have, may you move past the good images you were comfortable with and come into the profound understandings that you'll be amazed by and trust him as your Savior and Lord. 